Hello and welcome to Talking Point. And today we're coming to you from the European Parliament for a special show on the future of Europe. Later in the show, I'll be joined by MEPs, Mairead McGuinness, Marion Harkin and Matt Carty. But right now, I'm delighted to welcome Patrick Smith, who's just been appointed Europe Editor of the Irish Times, and David McAllister, German MEP for the Christian Democratic Union Party. That's Angela Merkel's party. And David McAllister, I'm going to start with you. Um, This week, Angela Merkel has said, we, the Europeans, will have to take our fate into our own hands. Our friendship with the US, the UK, our neighbourly relationship with Russia, and also with other countries count, of course. But we must know, we have to fight for our own future. What did she mean by that? Angela Merkel is a strong supporter of close transatlantic relations between Europe and the United States and Canada. And if you know her well, she's really committed towards continuing this transatlantic cooperation. But what she pointed out was the obvious that despite us having such close trade relations and cooperation on defense and security, obviously the president has different opinions than most of the other European leaders on climate change, on defense, on trade. And so her message was to the German people that we will continue to work on our friendship with the Americans, but we've got to face reality. There are some different opinions, and this this means if the president wants to make America first or America even greater again, that we Europeans must get our act together and cooperate more closely because in the globalized world of the 21st century, we Europeans are only strong if we act together. Was she falling into some kind of a trap, though, that now it is set up as this binary America versus Europe and that maybe she might have been better off being a bit more diplomatic and try and heal these wounds instead of escalating? Angela Merkel has been very clear after the U.S. presidential elections, before her first visit to Washington, during her visit, after her visit, that it is so important that the European Union and the United States of America remain close partners. There is no country outside Europe which is so close to us like the United States of America. And we're very thankful for the American commitment to our defense and security, for instance, in Europe. But on climate change or the future of our trade relations, we obviously have different views, and that's a pity. So is this part of the idea of integrating Europe even further, and that when it comes to, say, something like a common foreign policy, we have to stop disagreeing with each other. We have to start um, becoming more federalized, really, if that's not a provocative term to use, maybe. I believe the European Union should be bigger on big things and smaller on small things. I don't want more Europe in general. I want a better Europe. I want more and closer European cooperation on the big issues which cannot be tackled at a national or regional level. But that doesn't mean that more Europe in general is always the right way. And I think the solution to our challenges in Europe is, and let me just once quote what the heads of government declared in Rome, we will allow for the necessary room for manoeuvre at the various levels to strengthen Europe's innovation and growth potential. So this means we in the future will see a more differentiated approach in the European Union, different levels of integration, like we've already had them with the Eurozone or the Schengen Corporation. Um, Paddy Smith, we saw as well this week, you know, uh, Macron reaching out to Merkel, literally going for that first handshake with what people are calling the leader of the free world now. Um, do you see them together pushing for a common foreign policy? I think that's, that's one aspect of, of uh, integration that we will, we will see. 
on, on a lot of things, like, for, for example, on, on, on the Ukraine and on borders with Russia and those sort of issues, there isn't actually much difference between uh, Germany and France and, and other European countries. There's some difference uh, on issues like sanctions and how fast sanctions should be imposed. But so, yes, there will be greater integration, uh, I think, of foreign policy, but it's applying throughout the Union on a whole range of different policies. I've just come from a, a commission uh, press briefing on a document on the future of economic and monetary union, where the Commission is arguing that the status quo uh, is not an option, that we have to bring things together. And that's the only way, as Moscovici, a uh, French commissioner, said, that we're going to take on and defeat the, the, the demons of, of the far right and, and nationalism. Um. Do you think, though, that that's one of those areas, and I want to come back to the foreign policy, but say on the currency, where the leaders are way ahead of the people, that maybe, for example, what Irish people feel is that uh, they were left to pay for their way out of the banking crisis, and they don't see the solution as being further integration. Maybe they feel a little bit betrayed and want to keep their distance from a core and maybe are happy to be on a periphery. I think that it it depends on how you saw the the bailout. I agree. And, and yeah. um, it, it certainly the perspective over here is not that Ireland left, was left swing. Um, there is a strong sense here, and I, I think it's quite justified that that uh, Germany and others actually came to Ireland's rescue, and that it was a, a demonstration of the sort of solidarity that the union should should be about. So I, I think there is confusion in Ireland about it. But there are aspects, for example, of EU spending and uh, that we've always been very strongly supportive of. Agricultural spending is, is an obvious one. Social and structural uh, spending is, is, is another. And that is not, that is not unpopular. And, and greater involvement by the EU in, in expanding its budget in some of those areas would actually be popular, not uh, counterproductive. So you think um, Irish people would support further integration and completing the currency project? I think that the, there, the, there are things that we have to do. For example, the banking union, which is uh, it isn't complete. It's half half done. Uh, completing the currency union also requires a degree of political union uh, that we have to do. And part of what that integration is about is, is letting these guys in the parliament have a say over economic policy, which they don't really have at the moment. And that's part of the process. So political union isn't necessarily a, a drawing powers away from ordinary people uh, into uh, a, a Brussels bureaucracy. It's, it's also about engaging them in, in issues that relate to the currency directly. And going back then to a common foreign policy and a defence policy, uh, you know, we're talking about the, those Baltic states and the borders with Russia. Do you think it's tenable for Ireland to maintain a neutrality status if Russia invades a country, say, like Estonia? I think, I think it's very difficult. I think it's, it's morally indefensible to say we wouldn't come to the defence of, of Estonia if Estonia was attacked. And that might seem a bit abstract in Dublin. Uh, people would tend to say, ah, you know, it's not going to happen. The Russians aren't going to do that. But if you are in Estonia and you talk to Estonians and Latvians and Lithuanians about what their fears are, they really do fear 
that Putin is uncontrolled and that, that he needs to be restrained. And they value uh, the common defence in a way that we simply don't understand. We, we, were never, we were never occupied during the Second World War. So and we think we're never going to be occupied, so it doesn't matter. So it's a privilege that we don't have to concern ourselves with. But that's the, the problem with solidarity is that it works at all sorts of different levels. Uh, we have benefited from European solidarity on, on cohesion funding, uh, which allowed us to build up our, our industries. We benefited from c- solidarity in... Uh, agriculture, where we our agriculture has flourished thanks to s- subsidies for, from Europe. So it's not unreasonable for other Europeans to say, well, hold on a sec, why, why do you think you don't have to have anything to do with our neutrality, uh, with, with, with our common defence? So, Dave McAllister, how is Ireland seen? Are we seen as takers? You know, so fine, we'll take the cap, we'll take the cohesion funds... But when it comes to chipping in for something else, we're not interested. Or, fine, Germany, you worry about Russia's borders on the Baltic states, but that's not our problem. Or corporate tax. Or corporate tax. Oh, we can get to that as well. You know, how are we seen by Germans? Of course, there are some tricky issues. But in general, Ireland is seen in a very positive way in my country because the policy of the Taoiseach and his government show Germans that if you're in economic problems, you can make the best out of it. And there's a lot of respect for the reform course Ireland has gone through in the last few years. And Ireland is often portrayed in Germany as a positive example, especially in comparison to Greece, that you can get on, you can recover, and that solidarity in the European Union is not a one-way street. You get but you also give. So it's a rather positive portrait of Irish policy. But in general, Germans also respect that Ireland, for instance, isn't member of NATO. We have six EU countries which are not member of NATO. And I understand that certain countries in the European Union are not interested in a closer cooperation within the EU framework on defence and security. But there are countries like Germany, France, Italy, Spain, who want to progress in their cooperation. And I'll just give you one example. We Europeans spend more for defence and security than the Chinese or Russians. We spend 50% of what the Americans are spending. But we're not spending our taxpayers' money in an effective way. We have 28 armies in 28 member states, and this doesn't work in the 21st century. That's why I strongly believe, as a German politician, in a much closer defence cooperation within the EU framework, for instance, on defence research, development, or also procurement. So, so do you believe it's morally sustainable then for Ireland to opt out of that or do you think that we should be prepared to come to the defence of our EU member states for example Estonia as we're quoting well this is a decision of the Irish uh, uh, government which you would have to take or the Irish parliament and do you have a view on what our decision should be NATO guarantees our defence and security and important for the Baltic countries would be in case of the Russian attack that all NATO members um, fulfil their obligations of the article 5 uh, of the NATO uh, treaty, and I've heard clear messages also from American politicians the last few days that this is absolutely respected. Even though Trump wouldn't support that when he was here? Well, he didn't name Article yeah. 5, but for instance, on Monday I had five senators uh, here in the European Parliament uh, for a discussion, Republicans and Democrats, and they were very clear in their commitment to NATO and also to Article 5. And I mean, until now in history, Article 5 has been triggered once. And that was beneficial for the United States after the horrible 9-11 attacks. 
Tell me a little bit about Angela Merkel. You're in her party, you're close to her. What's she really like? She's a great leader. She's a fantastic woman. I've been working together for her for nearly 20 years. Uh, and she's very highly respected uh, by the German people because she has a, how you say in English, down-to-earth approach, no fuss. Um, she analyzes political challenges and then she goes through the different options the German government could have and then she goes the one way or the other um, and she knows exactly what's at stake but she also strongly believes in European cooperation. What we as Christian Democrats, but not only as Christian Democrats, I would also include the other political parties in Germany, we strongly believe in a European Germany which is something completely different than a German Europe. What do you mean by that? A European Germany means that, of course, Germany is aware of being the largest nation in the European Union, but we have the strongest economy. But German leadership in Europe also means its leadership from behind and always together with France. The L'Amitié Franco-Allemande is the motor of the European integration and that we respect all member states in the European Union if they're small or medium-sized at eye level. Okay. Um, Paddy Smith, your colleague um, Derek Scally was writing in the Irish Times during the week about Merkel and that he's saying her message is not new, um, but its urgency is. And that since taking office in 2005, she has always seized a crisis and used it as an opportunity. So the financial crisis was an opportunity to fill in the gaps in banking regulation and finish the euro process. The refugee crisis she saw as a chance to push for a proper EU asylum policy. Um, the series of Islamist terrorist attacks she saw as a chance to break open national security silos. And finally, when she's presented with President Trump and his protectionist policies, that this is the chance to complete the European single market. Now, there's a difference, I guess, between is that the difference between not wasting a crisis or having your policies in reserve so that when the moment comes that the people will accept them, you're ready to strike. Which do you think she's, she's doing? I think there's a, there's a fair amount of tactical consideration on her, her, her part going on here. But one of the things I would say about the timing of the latest statement is, is that uh, if, you know, if they would ha- were given the chance, I think 27 other leaders uh, would have applauded what she did. And that this wasn't... There was considerable exasperation at, at Trump. Uh, there was a, a certain reserve. Uh, it was quite interesting that they, that they didn't really feel that they wanted to take him on and have an argument because the, you, don't have, you don't win an argument with, with, with Trump. So they listened to him and they, they saw him off and, and, and he went away. And then she said what they all felt, which was, <laughs> what a waste of space. There are very important differences that he... Uh, he has with the European Union. The, the, the whole issue of climate change is p- global in significance, and America's re- retreat from it is is potentially catastrophic for the rest of the world. Yes. And the, the uh, and the Article Five um, commitment. David says he, the, he didn't mention it, but he, he had every opportunity to mention it, and he knew that everybody wanted him to mention it, and his officials were briefing that there wasn't a problem with this then why didn't he do it? Why didn't he actually say, I will come to the support of, of Europe if, if, if it's attacked? Because that's the fundamental pillar of NATO. It's not just an add-on extra. It's the cornerstone. So I think what she did 
was express a view not just on on German interest, but but very profoundly uh, on European on across the European stage. Okay, well, Paddy Smith, Dave McAllister, many thanks for joining me, and I'm joined now by Mairead McGuinness from Fine Gael, Marion Harkin, who's an independent, and McCarthy from Sinn Féin, and they are all MEPs and constituency colleagues in the constituency of Midlands Northwest, which is really everything north of Leash minus Dublin, and it's a huge constituency. And we're just laughing here because McCarthy <laughs> is the token man, which never happens on a media panel. And Matt, you were saying you're the first male Sinn Féin MEP ever to be elected. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm used to being the token man, um, I suppose, um, being put in place the opposite of gender quotas um, and maybe we need to in- insert gender quotas within the Sinn Féin European <laughs> team because we have Leonie Reid and Lynn Boyle and Martina Anderson who I'm currently working with and Mary Lou MacDonald and Barbara De Bruyne were our previous MEPs. So it's yes. incredible and actually I do want to officially acknowledge that I used to be against gender quotas but Mairead McGuinness was one of the team that persuaded me in favour of them. It took a while. I've given up. Well, yeah. well look as I said way back I was against them when I was 17 and I'm now a little bit older than 17 Five, seven, and I just said nothing has changed yeah. since I was 17 so unfortunately sometimes you do need it and actually I hadn't realised that Matt that you are the first male uh, Sinn Féin MEP but you're, you're doing it's a grand job I also <laughs> support gender quotas Mairead for what it's worth Marion where are you on the quotas? Actually the very same as Mairead mm. before I was elected I always thought if you're good enough you'll mm. make it mm. it was only after I was elected, that I changed my mind. And I think they should be time limited mm. until we get to, you know, a critical balance, as it were. And then it becomes normal and we don't talk about it yeah. anymore. Yeah, And it's a pity. I didn't want to be in favour of it, but you just realise in the end that's all yeah. you can do. But look, let's talk about another woman. Before the break there, I was talking to Dave McAllister and Paddy Smith about Angela Merkel and her extraordinary statements this week where she appears really to just thrown her hands up. She can't deal with Trump. She didn't say that, but she said Europe has to fight for its own future. Maureen McGuinness, what did you think of her comments? Well, I think the woman is speaking from the head and the heart. Uh, I was talking to David before you started uh, talking to him uh, for interview, and he said, look, it was one sentence in a 40-minute speech. So I think it's sometimes you can take context away from it. She's a very measured woman, so she doesn't say things off the top of her head. But I think she's saying things to Europe, which we know ourselves, that we can't rely on others. We do have to do things ourselves. I'm sure there's an element of frustration in that relationships between Europe and US are very important, but with the the President Trump, they are very difficult, and I think that's just a fact. Maybe personality-wise, there are differences. She's a very calm, considered, uh, steady politician he's not that or any of the above and maybe that didn't work particularly well on NATO there's real and deep conflict there so I I wondered when I read the headlines I thought this is quite dramatic when I hear the background to them maybe not so but it is part of a an evolution where Europe with Brexit with Trump with other challenges is perhaps having to look at itself and say if we mean business and want to stay strong then we have to be more together on certain policies and she is in in an election I think we also have to make that point. It was in Bavaria in a beer tent where she was making this political speech. So I think also that context is very important. But overall, she does not tend to say things out of turn. Mm. That she probably meant that, but in a wider context. And and I'm not so sure then it was so dramatic. I think it's been kind of consistent. Um, Marion Harkin, what did you make of it, particularly in the context of a common foreign policy, that if we're stuck now with an aggressive Russia on one side of the board as a protectionist,
socialist America on the other side and Britain leaving the European Union and all the defence capability that they had, is Ireland going to have to get out of its little comfort zone and start signing up to a European Union foreign and defence policy? Well, going back to what Merkel said, you mentioned Eric Scally earlier, and I just read a piece, his piece, and I thought he, he was very clever when he said, if Washington is pulling back, if the UK is pulling out, then the EU must pull together. And that was his analysis. Actually, I'm not sure Merkel did the right thing. I think Maybe, in a way, she's almost playing Trump's game. I, I think, you know the expression we have at home, she was a bit previous, um, that maybe she should have let it go a little. And earlier you spoke about sometimes politicians wait for events to happen and then they use that as an opportunity to put in place policies that they had there in the first place. We have a transatlantic relationship in place for 70 years. And... I think, you know, one president, one German chancellor, you know, this is a hump in the road. It, it may be a very big hump, but give it 12 months. Wait until the Republicans are facing a midterm election. And let's see if the, you know, if Trump and uh, the Americans are still saying you know, the it's, same it's thing. It's funny you say that because I was thinking the same thing myself. You know, Trump could be gone in a year. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. So is it wise to base, you know, a major policy shift on the back of one man who mightn't be around that long? No, it isn't. But I think we must also see this in the context of the five options that have been put on the table, you know, by the Commission and that maybe because of Brexit, that, which is another circumstance, another event, that Europe has to look at where it's going to go from here. And this is a debate we need to have. Do we want to Europe put a core and then a periphery moving at a different pace? Do we want to move together more quickly? Do we want to do less more efficiently, etc.? And that's a debate we need to open up. Um, so, Mac Hardy, where do you stand on this? Because as far as I can see, this is moving out of the realm of the abstract to the particular, especially when it comes to the Russians and their behaviour in the Crimean Ukraine. The Estonians are genuinely fearful. It could be them next. Is it sufficient for us to sit back and say, you know what, it's not us, no one's going to invade us. Are, are we going to do nothing if the Russians invade Estonia? I was listening to Paddy Smith earlier on comment about how Ireland had never been occupied and as somebody who oh. comes from a few miles south of the border, <laughs> um, I was thinking to myself, um, was I in a parallel universe? I think what we should be using our own unique history, um, our own um, experience of peace process, is to be carving out a very particular um, role for ourselves in the world, a role that until quite recently I think we had proven ourselves to be very adapted and that is um, working with the United Nations on internationally approved missions and presenting ourselves as um, arbitrators and negotiators and um, honest brokers in relation, to, in relation to conflicts. I don't see any role or any positive re result of us engaging in an EU um, aggressive military agenda, I, I have to say. I was talking to um, Phil Hogan earlier today and we were talking about this and he was saying in one sense we actually are already involved because the EU issued sanctions against Russia for their behaviour in the Ukraine and we were part of that and we actually suffered a direct backlash of that because the Russians cancelled lots of um, agriculture contracts and I think five billion was lost. So it actually had a direct impact on farmers. So is it... 
Is economics as far as you might be prepared to go? No, I think it, the Ukraine um, situation and the entire situation around Eastern Europe is very complex. And anybody who tries to argue that this is a simple issue of good Europe and bad Russia, um, in my view, is misleading um, our own our, our own peoples. Because what well, do you is not a very see it like that, though? Isn't that exactly what uh, it absolute, is? Absolutely. Russian um, um, direction under Vladimir Putin is entirely negative. It has um, um, it, it is a very regressive agenda. But let's not pretend that the actions of the European Union in relation to the EU didn't exacerbate a lot of the situations in, in Ukraine as well. Um, and that's the only point I'm making on that. And what I'm saying is that rather than being part of what is a uh, concentrated um, push and drive towards uh, EU. Um, concentrated um, military agenda, and I would argue a very negative military agenda, um, is somehow the answer to any of the uh, any of the problems that we're facing. Because I look at the world, I look at all the problems that we acknowledge exist in the world, and I ask myself: Is the answer to any of the problems we see another army, um, and particularly a large yeah, um, superpower type army? Yeah. And I have to say that I don't believe that that is the answer. You see, I, I don't think. Either of those scenarios are the correct one because um, I remember listening, there was a conference uh, EPP organised and the German uh, Minister for uh, Defence spoke at length about her ideas around cooperation on military spending. And there's no doubt that um, I dislike the idea of armies and military, but I know we have to have defence. We have it even in our own country. But the the waste of resources um, across Europe where there are large armies, where things could be done better and more efficiently is not the same as Europe going for an army to invade Russia. I think we're jumping away ahead of ourselves. What Europe was built on was peace, so its very nature is to avoid war and conflict and to find resolutions through peaceful means. But also Europe does need to have uh, strength. People want to know that they are being defended. In this parliament, we have stronger security now because of the risks (coughs) to the parliament and to people who work here. So I I sometimes think that people, when they say... uh, foreign security policy or defence, they see European army, my children will be dragged into it. Uh, I do not see that. I know Ireland is against that. Um, But the idea that we should therefore do nothing, when you hear about the inefficiencies in spending in armies across Europe, I think is not a good thing. So budgets are very tight. This isn't actually about um, resolving inefficiencies. In fact, what the European Union is putting pressure on member states to do is actually increase its military spending, including Ireland. Um, So this isn't about actually saving money for the taxpayers of Europe. This is about... um, this is a very separate agenda. Let's say if it was. Let's say if it was something like we need to buy new helicopters or planes that can be used for coast guard rescue mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And instead of them having to, instead of us having to buy it ourselves, if we can do some bulk purchasing as part of a European Union thing, you know that we would save money that way and have better and resources ourselves. That sounds ourselves. very um, benign, um, Sarah. But that's not what we're talking about here. In terms of if we look at what happened since the um, Brexit vote in relation to the election of Trump indeed and when European leaders have come together we have listened to people like Jean-Claude Juncker um, come out and say and talk about the creation of a European army now the truth of the matter is that there isn't a single member state that I'm aware of where there is popular support for the creation of such a, an army. And part of the problem, that, um, and that as I see it, is that Europe has come to the point where, they're, where the leaders are finally realising that there are problems. There are problems in relation to the engagement of citizens with the European project. But, and they're coming up with answers. 
but they're coming up with answers to the wrong questions. What citizens are asking for is for Europe to be more responsive to their needs and in fact what the response of the European institutions increasingly has become, let's just do what we're already doing faster, quicker and bigger than, um, than we have been up to now in the hope that somehow citizens will forget that they're actually opposed to these moves. Marianne I think Harkin. we're conflating an awful lot of different things here and I still remember the Nice Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty and all of those leaflets that were put out there about your children being mm. drafted into a European army and um, people get very scared when they hear this but I think the first thing that I would say and this is bottom line the first duty of any state is to defend its citizens now the second question is how do you go about that and then there's a third question we are part of the EU and you know what are our reciprocal Agreements, And then the fourth point is many of our EU uh, fellow members are part of NATO. Mm. And when David McAllister was speaking to you, that's what he said. You know, NATO's Article 5 is a mutual defence clause. And he believed that basically Europe's security would be dealt with in that way. But, you know, Moraith is talking about more efficient spending. Matt is talking about that, you know, you mentioned the helicopters, yeah. that that's a benign way of looking at it, but it is also part of it. And I think we need to tease out the little bits mm. and pieces. We know Ireland's position um, in regard to neutrality being, you know, we have our but triple But you think lock. within that, we still might be able to participate in some ways, even I within think, that? I think what we need is... You know, those who, let's say, are in charge of our armed forces, our minister, to open up that uh, discussion and that we can see if there is some way in our using, you know, our traditional neutrality, etc., that we can benefit from what we need what we might need. Um, Mairead, I want to come on to money, if you don't mind, if we, if we shift the, the topic. And it was interesting, actually, that David McAllister was saying that the Germans see Ireland as, you know, we dug ourselves out of a hole and we made the hard decisions, whereas Irish people would think we were abandoned. Now, the Germans might say, well, you made your own mess, so of course you had to dig your own way out of it. The solution to the financial crisis, all the experts that I talk to agree, is complete the euro. Uh, project. What, where, is, where do you think the solution lies? With further integration and completing the project? I think yes, in a word, because um, I, I, I take some issue with how Irish people view the crisis. Yes, it, a lot of people felt let down. But on the other hand, look how different Ireland is to Greece today. And thankfully, that is the case. We're not, it's not finished, but at least we made progress. Um, there's no doubt that we can't stand still. And that is the difficulty. And we all know that the euro was a political project. Perhaps the technical issues and, and other things were not dealt with at the same time as its creation. So we do have to complete it. And the white paper, again, is about options and ideas. And it is, if you look where we're broadcasting from now, it's people flurrying to and fro. It is people here and others in national parliaments and, and prime ministers that will decide finally what happens. But the status quo can't prevail because the fear would be that if we do nothing, we will have a repeat performance in terms of a crisis in the future. So yes, 
it depends also on how you interpret integration. Some yeah. see it as a positive because we're stronger together. Others see integration as something to be fearful of and that we're better off on our own. Um, and I think given Brexit in particular, uh, from an Irish perspective, and I think we all worked very hard on the whole Brexit and Northern Ireland question, that I see greater strength now in unity than in being separate from, including on the economic issues. And Matt, where are you on that? You know, let's say there had been a full currency union when the financial crisis hit and we had to find all these tens of billions of euros to bail out our banks. If there had been a full currency union, we would have been able to get money from a European Central Bank for that without having to bail ourselves out, if you know what I mean. So do you support a furtheration of the currency project so we're not left in that position again? I see no evidence that if the same situation was to happen again that we wouldn't see a repeat of what happened. And I suppose there's no point having a debate around what now is almost a historic political issue. But the Irish people were saddled with 64-odd billion euro of debt that wasn't theirs. And, and to and stop that the, happening the, again... The main beneficiaries of the position of the, that what happened, the main beneficiaries were German and other European banks. So let's not pretend that somehow you know this was a great act of solidarity on behalf of the well, European exactly. Union because they allowed this debt to be so, transferred to the Irish people. So if it happened tomorrow... <clears throat> Um, and if we had a fully functioning central bank and a fully federalised system whereby Germany could just transfer money to Ireland without to have this whole bailout process, that wouldn't happen again. We wouldn't be saddled with it again. So would you support uh, further powers for the European Central Bank so that won't be repeated? Not in its current guise. The ECB is the most undemocratic of all the European institutions. It has um, effectively become a vehicle for German economic policy to be imposed on the rest of, on the rest of Europe. There are some areas... Well, um, is that fair? The fa- is that fair? Because it's made up of the members of all the different central Absolutely. banks. Absolutely, and it is accountable yeah. to nobody. But if you look at in terms of, for example, when the banking inquiry was taking place in the Oireachtas, the ECB refused refused to engage with it, yet it attends um, um, committee hearings of the Bundestag. Um, When it it is accountable in theory to the European Parliament, I'm actually a member of the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee. I've had the engagements with Mario Draghi and what those engagements comprise of is a five-minute interaction, which means that if I spend four minutes asking questions, um, Mario Draghi has one minute to respond. Um, And that's the the sum total. And that happens about three or four times a year. So without having... If, without having full democratic accountability of an institution that, would, that has such far-reaching powers as the ECB, then I would argue that we shouldn't be giving the ECB so more powers. If there, now, was a way, if there was a way to get that accountability, would you be well, happier I see, then? I, I see no, um, uh, no initiative at a European level towards moving that. I think, again, in terms of how we respond to the economic wants and needs, I think there's a need to um, understand that every country is different. And particularly when you're talking about Ireland in a post-Brexit scenario, there are going to be nuanced policy, policy requirements for a country like, like ours. And sometimes that will mean flexibility in relation to taxation. We don't have the flexibility in relation to interest rates and currency um, that is usually the first line of um, an economic defence for any um, shocks that occur within, yeah. the, within the system. So I'd be very weary about giving up any of our um, other um, flexibilities. That's not to say that there isn't things that we can do at an EU level 
in, together that would be in the best interest of all of us. And one of the areas that I would absolutely, in a financial framework, see as something that we should be doing much better and much um, in speeder is the whole issue of tax transparency, particularly in relation to multinational corporations and some of the wealthiest organisations in the uh, and individuals in the world who are using the variations in relation to the disclosure policies within various revenue systems. So, do you support as, as means to ex, ex, uh, exploit those fine, um, taxation systems so, to so avoid you, paying their taxes? So, do you support what? called the CCCTB or BEPS where they establish a moral principle money that's earned in the country must be taxed in the country and you're not allowed to move it around. I think the CCCTB um, sounds much better on um, in terms of the principle than when you actually get down to the mm-hmm. fine print and we're, we're moving towards that. Like, for example, we're now finding out that within, within the Commission's proposals there would be a situation that lots of companies in Ireland would actually be paying less tax yes. as a result of the position that there can only be one specific tax rate. We Yes, we can set the tax rate, but it has to be the same for everybody, exactly. which is different than what's currently in place. So again, sometimes I think because there's a reluctance at an Irish level, because we all agree with the concept of Ireland being part of a European Union, and we know that that, um, and that means that at some points is there, needs to, there needs to be compromises met. But I think because we have that as a starting point, at an Irish level, sometimes there's a reluctance to criticise any of the big projects that have been proposed at an EU level. Well, and I think we're actually doing our own. Marion, where, where do you stand on all that? <laughs> there's a lot there. I know, know there's you stand a lot. On. I know. <laughs> and, and just one comment. I was listening to Paddy Smith earlier, and he was talking about that at European level, you know, they felt they bailed us out. They did not. And I will never forget the night it was announced. I was watching it on ITV when they said the interest rate was 5.9%. It was extortionate. And it was put at that level to teach us a lesson. Things changed because, of course, Portugal needed help, etc., but and John Claude Trichet was the one telling us you cannot burn senior bondholders, you know. So yeah, I'm yes, with you and, there. And look, <laughs> I, I think actually, if you were to look at the legality of putting money into zombie banks, it is actually against the rules of the ECB so, in the first place. So what place. now? But what, what, where, how would you go forward? But then? the question is, uh, the currency union that we're part of, the currency itself, is still imperfect. It was not fit for purpose then. And it still isn't fit for purpose now, though it's better than it was. So, you see, when you say uh, if, if this happened again, that would mean that Germany could transfer money to Ireland. But remember, it could also mean that Ireland could be transferring money yeah. to Greece or to whoever. So a transfer union, of which you speak about, which is the way, for example, the the dollar currency Mm. is managed, or sterling, uh, means that you transfer from those areas that that have it, if you like, to those areas that need it. So we could never assume that we would always be the ones receiving. Mm. Sometimes we could be the ones giving. So I think that's important. But look, if we're going to be part of a currency, I think the discussion has to be do we want a currency in place that's robust that will stand up to the shocks that, that come from you know economic crisis in parts of the world we have no control over and know nothing about uh, so the question most people would say if we're going to be in a currency then the, the infrastructure of that currency should be such that it will protect us. So the question then is, how do we do that? Now, I suspect Matt would 
agree with that analysis. Where there might be differences would be how we go about doing that. Mm. Um, So, I mean, Maureen, it seems to me, though, that what we're always asking for is we want them to come to our rescue, be it on defence, terrorism and the currency. But when it comes to us saying, well, what are we prepared to put in? We go, 64 oh, I'm billion. not so sure about that. But, but I, I actually disagree with the us and them scenario. Right. Because I had an interesting conversation with um, one of the Brexiteers uh, from the UK who was trying to put Ireland and England and Britain on one side as us against them, European side. And I had to say, no, we're with the EU27. So even the terminology is peculiar, although it is true that I think most people like to get rather than give. It's more comfortable to receive money from the EU budget, for example, than to give. We're net contributors now. and I, 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 talked, to a, I talked to a group recently and I explained that, that we're marginally net contributors to the budget. Mm-hmm. And would they be happy post-Brexit to pay a little more into the EU budget so we can continue to support farming and other policies and there was a sharp intake of breath and they said no and I said but would you like to get more out of the budget and naturally hands went up but you can't have it both ways so I do think that this uh, time that we're in now is forcing us all to think more deeply to challenge ourselves and and the people we represent about how the world is today and how we can stay within the European Union and work to make it better, not just on the the currency side, but socially and on other issues, so that our children will enjoy the benefits of it. Because I remember, it was 2015, there was a time here when we were shaking with nerves that the euro would collapse. We forget very easily how it was on the edge and people were terrified and there was all sorts of movement of money. Um, We forget the benefits of free movement. We forget that our children can do Erasmus programs, those that can go to college. Um, And you you talk to to young people in, in the UK at the moment. Um, and many of them are worried, the Europeans are worried about their position in the UK and they're beginning to understand and appreciate what European Union membership means so all we've talked about so far in the programme is about the future of Europe and we've talked in particular about the currency end of it, but at least we're talking about the future because there is another option it is disintegration and it can happen by accident or design and there were forces in this house who pulled one country towards that disintegration model they won't be here in 2019 I hope those of us, if we're lucky enough to be here then, will be able to say that we actually did strengthen the backbone of the European Union in the interests of citizens in a way that which gives them more trust and confidence that Europe does serve their interests because what is the option for Ireland? Yeah, when you look at it. Well, there are some Europe. people at home talking about our exit. Yeah, which, you know, which when you think about that, so we, if we did, for example, so we would pull ourselves out of the single market. So where would we sell anything to, if not to the European Union? Now, I know we sell a lot to the US, but indeed there are issues there too. So I think it's actually healthy that we're having such deep debates because people are having these conversations. But I, so, I, can oh, I Marian, just make yeah. a comment there. I, I don't think our exit, despite what people maybe are saying on social media, etc., is something that's going to face us in the near future. But I think what is definitely going to face us is to be part of a process whereby decisions are taken about the future Mm -hmm. of Europe and our role within that future. And earlier I mentioned the five options that are Mm -hmm. on the table. And we were in the... Um, the thought last week and we spoke with TDs about this and there is no debate at home and I think that debate needs to be started uh, and in, in, in a timely way because you know something in two years time in this house we may be looking 
at making certain decisions. And uh, we need that debate because the options on the table, as I said, are about doing less more efficiently. So you have to decide, well, if you're doing less, what do you not do? Mm. Or doing mm. more, etc. Or letting a core group go forward, maybe with the security defence and some of those other issues. And then another group, you know, on, on it, I won't say on a second tier, but on a separate tier. So those are all issues that are up for discussion. And I think politicians need in this interim period, certainly over the next 12 months, right. to be able to state their positions. Matt, we're coming to the end of the programme. So just very briefly, um, Mairead said there, trust and confidence, you know, and the vibe I'm getting from you is not much trust maybe in the European institutions, which might be a legitimately held belief. Do you think, though, that we're, the only way out is more democratic powers to the parliament, more democratic accountability, as you were saying, but if you get that, then we just have to get into that core and get into the, onto that track and have more integration because ultimately that does provide the solution to all these problems. I actually don't believe that that's the track that we need to go on. I actually, if I was to agree with one thing that David McAllister has said, I think that Europe needs to concentrate on the big things and uh, and devolve the, um, the the what would be called the issues that are best decided at a national level yeah. back but to say, national parliaments. But those parliament. two, but say currency um, on the currency and the money. That's see, big. There's a big. There's a bit, to me, the, this is a fundamental problem. I actually think joining the euro was a mistake on but the part of Ireland. Now. But I can't. It's done now. And I can. And, and yeah. we can't advocate ever leaving the euro, euro because the financial consequences would be so great. Um, and the same is the, one of the reasons why we will never see a debate around our exit or uh, an Irish exit from the EU is because people recognise that the consequences will be so great that it isn't, yeah. even, a, it isn't even a discussion point. So therefore, point. So you just have to keep going. Well, you can't we, go we back. We need to say that do we want to be part of... Uh, a group that's greatest strength in keeping us part of it is a fear of what would happen if we left? Or do we want to shape the European Union in a way in which the the, the needs and wants of citizens, not just in Ireland, Mm. but in Germany or in Greece or in Italy, are responded to as necessary in relation to what they need, rather than the situation where the um, peoples of Germany's, int- Germany's interest is okay, put above the, the interest of the best, the best example of where we actually did influence hugely was around Brexit and the work of this Parliament, where we're small in number. We don't all agree on everything, but by goodness on that issue, we got huge support. So sometimes you can influence. You don't have to be large, and we have influence. And we okay. still have to see what happens with Brexit. Yet. We that's, have to keep a, an eye on it. That's a debate it. for another day, Sarah. Marie <laughs> McGuinness, Marion Harkin, Matt Carty, many thanks for joining me today, and uh, thank you for listening to our show from um, the European Parliament. Thanks to Stephen Jordan, who produced, and thank you for listening today.